The Bible lesson for today is written in the 10th chapter of Mark, beginning with verse 32. Please stand for the reading of the word. They were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way, and the disciples were astonished, while those who followed were afraid. Again, he took the twelve aside and told them what was going to happen to him. We are going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles, who will mock him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you, he asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. You don't know what you are asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, You will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Then they came to Jericho. As Jesus and his disciples together with a large crowd were leaving the city, a blind man, Bartimaeus, which means son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and said, Call him. So they called to the blind man, Cheer up, on your feet. He's calling you. Throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and came to Jesus. What do you want me to do for you, Jesus asked him. The blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. Go, said Jesus, your faith has healed you. Immediately, he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. The word of the Lord. Good morning again, everybody. Thank you. It's so great to be here with you this morning. I'm really glad to have a chance to share with you the good news story of Jesus that we just heard. If you're new here, if you're visiting for the first time or the first few times, my name's Steve. I'm one of your pastors here too, and I'm just really glad to be here with you. And I hope that you have felt loved and welcomed among our church family. I hope perhaps it might be a sign to you of the love and welcome of God to you. 
We have the opportunity this morning to reflect on this good news story from the life of Jesus that we just heard. The kind of story from the life of Jesus that makes sense of, like that opening song that we sang. We, we, we sang, we're going to lift high the name of Jesus and tell all that he has done. Why would that be a good idea, right? Except that he has done such great things for us that Jesus deserves honor for that and it strengthens and encourages our hearts and saves our lives to tell the story of what he has done. To get you thinking about the meaning of what we heard in this story today, I want to ask you kind of a lofty question. Here's, here's the question I want to ask you just to ponder for a moment. How does God change the world? How does God change the world? Actually, let me bring that down a level. Does, God need, does the world need to be changed or are we good? Everybody all right? Set? No, not so much, right? For goodness sake, we live in a world where we had to give each other the elbow bump of peace just a minute ago. The world is broken all the way down to the viruses, right? So maybe we believe that God needs to change the world. Let me ask you another question. What if the world were on its way to getting better? If we were going to help make the world a better place, if we were going to cooperate with God, how, how would you see that happening? Like, what would people do that would fix the world, that would make it all better? It's hard to think about, isn't it? You come up with all the answers. Let me give you the last hardest question just to ponder for a moment. Uh, if the world, well, let's, let's go ahead this way. All the things that are wrong with the world, that things that need to be fixed, is that because the world is like other people or like you? Whose fault is it? Sometimes I think when we imagine, if only the world were really a better place, the world would be a much better place if only it was as truly wonderful as I am. Okay, you just let those questions just percolate in the back of your mind for a second. These kinds of questions are in the background of this story that we're going to read. Let me take you through the details of the story again, and then we're going to return to that level of the story. In the story that we heard read, especially in the second half, where kind of a lot of this action happens, Jesus and his closest followers and a whole crowd of people are following Jesus, and he is on the way to Jerusalem. This is the big capital city. This is where the action happens. This is the center of God's people. And the action that Jesus is going to, he's told his disciples, he's going there to suffer. He's going there for conflict. He's going there to die. Not everybody has grasped this message yet. The crowds, they don't understand this yet, but he's been telling them that. He's on his way to Jerusalem, and they are passing through a very important but smaller city called Jericho. Jericho is one of the lowest places on planet Earth. It's down in the wilderness, around the Dead Sea, dry, hot area down there, a thousand or more feet below sea level. And it sits at the kind of the bottom of the road that goes up to Jerusalem, rising thousands of feet up into the hill country, up into the mountains of Judea. Jesus and some of his closest followers, his disciples, and a whole crowd of people who have begun to follow him are walking along the road, and they go through Jericho. And as they're leaving the town of Jericho, there's a blind man there, and his name is Bartimaeus. Bartimaeus, the Bible tells us, means son of Timaeus. Uh, Some of you may have heard of a, a Jewish ceremony called a bar mitzvah or a bat mitzvah. That means son of the commandment or daughter of the commandment. Bartimaeus is the son of someone named Timaeus, which happens to mean honor. Timaeus is a word that means honor. This is a sort of bitterly ironic name for Bartimaeus because as someone who suffered with a disability, he was blind, especially in his culture and at his time, he would have been one of the least honored people in his whole town. He was somebody that everybody would have looked down on, somebody who would have, he would have experienced life from the perspective of feeling like he was less than everybody else. Some of you maybe feel that way. When you are around other people, you feel like I'm less than them. You may be somebody 
who has been made to feel that way, other people have helped you to understand how much less you are, how unworthy you are. This was certainly Bartimaeus' experience. But he has heard that he's heard a ruckus. He's heard a crowd coming through town. And the story tells us that when he heard that it was Jesus causing all this ruckus, he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. I love how the reputation of Jesus has preceded him. There's something about it being Jesus that causes Bartimaeus to go, I'm going to cry out for mercy right now. I think that might do me some good. I think that might help, right? Would that my reputation, would that your reputation, would that our reputation would precede us in such a way so that hurting, broken people among us and around us would go, oh, good news, they're here. Wouldn't that be awesome? The reputation of Jesus has preceded him. And Bartimaeus cries out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Son of David is a faith statement. Bartimaeus gets it. He, he understands who Jesus is. He is the heir of the great King David who lived, I'm not kidding, a thousand years ago. He was the great king of Israel that, whose, whose heir, everybody was just waiting for God to send back. Please, God, send the heir of David. Put your chosen one on the throne again. Make it all right again in the world, please. And Bartimaeus goes, this is the guy. Jesus is the guy. He's the son of David. Just, okay, quick little... How, raise your hand if you are a Lord of the Rings fan. Anybody read or like the Lord of the Rings movies? 50-50 maybe in the room? Okay, for, for the Lord of the Rings nerds out there, everybody else just tune out for 20 seconds. This is like calling him the heir of Isildur, the one we've all been waiting for to come back and redeem Gondor. That's where Tolkien got the idea. All right, okay, everybody tune back in again. Jesus, son of David, you're the rightful king. Everybody else who pretends to sit on the throne and be in charge is doing it for their own good. They are misusers, usurpers. You're the king. And somehow he believes that Jesus is that guy and also that that guy would even condescend to have mercy on me. Oh, praise God that that's the truth about Jesus, that he's that good and that powerful. And also that it is characteristic of Jesus throughout the gospel stories of his life that he is the one who looks at somebody who's hurting, who's been hurt, who's made terrible choices, who's been wounded and shamed by everybody else. Jesus sees who everybody else fails to look at, right? He looks at everybody, at the people who everybody else overlooks. And so Bartimaeus goes, son of David, have mercy on me. And the people in the town do exactly what you might expect. They go, Bartimaeus, shut up. He doesn't have any time for you, right? Quiet down, stop it. But Bartimaeus, the story tells us, all the more cries out loudly, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus hears him and, and sends for him, calls him. He tells the people around him, bring Bartimaeus over here, he calls him. And then the people come to Bartimaeus and they say to Bartimaeus, the same ones who have just been saying to him, hush up, say to him now, stand up, right? Take courage, be of good cheer, take heart. Jesus is calling you, right? So Bartimaeus leaps up, the story says. He leaves his cloak behind, probably what he was begging for was on his cloak in the street. And he comes over to Jesus and Jesus asks him the obvious question, what do you want me to do for you, right? And Bartimaeus goes, I want to see again, right? Take that which is wrong and make it right. Restore me. I mean, he knows that there's something about him that could be healed and he wants healing. And Jesus says, your faith has saved you. And Bartimaeus can see again. And what does Bartimaeus do? He starts to follow Jesus. He joins the big crowd of people who are walking up the road to Zion, who are going to walk up the mountain road up to Jerusalem. He becomes a follower of Jesus like so many others. And, and at one important level, at the level of the, the events in the story, this is a story of Jesus' incredible power, 
Jesus' incredible compassion, the character of Jesus to see and care about those who are hurting, to take that which is wrong and make it right in the world. And if we would simply learn from this story about the love, character, compassion, grace, and power of Jesus for us in our brokenness, in our shame, when we feel like we're dirty and unworthy of Jesus, that he would come for us, if we would learn that about him and trust him and learn to walk in his way and see other people the way that he sees, we would have done well today. And yet there's even yet a whole nother level to this story. You see, the gospel writer Mark, most, most scholars of the gospel of Mark, believe that Mark has written this story in such a way that he has included certain details and chosen certain vocabulary, certain specific words, so as to call up in our minds that for, for those of us who have ears to hear, and frankly for most of us, myself included, this may not actually be us right away. It takes a little careful study. To call up for us a memory of another passage in the Bible. To call up in our minds the memory of what God inspired the ancient prophet Isaiah hundreds of years before to say. And so many of Jesus' contemporaries, Jesus himself, his followers, these were the scriptural stories they were raised on from their childhood. And to remind them of something that God had promised hundreds of years before and that they were waiting on. This story is told in such a way to echo a prophecy from Isaiah from hundreds of years earlier that we now call Isaiah chapter 35. And it should not surprise us at all, actually, that Mark would do this. The, the New Testament writers did this all the time. Mark actually, it seems like, echoed this same passage just a couple of chapters earlier in Mark chapter 7 in telling the story of Jesus healing a man who was deaf and who could not speak. And furthermore, at the very beginning of Mark's biography of Jesus, back in Mark chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, he said, I'm writing down here, this is the good news of Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, who fulfilled the word of the prophet Isaiah, right? And if somebody started their story that way, wouldn't you expect them to write their story to tell you like what that meant? That's exactly what Mark does. He narrates the story of Jesus to help us see how Jesus fulfills the promise of God given centuries before. Let me read you a few verses out of Isaiah chapter 35. And as I do this, I want you to notice a couple things. You'll, you'll hear a couple of details that correspond to the story of Jesus healing Bartimaeus. That it takes place, first of all, in the Judean Israelite wilderness, down there in the, uh, near the Dead Sea, in the, in the parched wilderness. In this prophecy from Isaiah 35, the eyes of the blind are opened, the ears of the deaf are unstopped, and mute tongues are loosened to speak. There is in this prophecy an exhortation to courage, to take heart, to fear not, as the people of the town said to Bartimaeus. In Isaiah 35, the he, those who are healed leap for joy as Bartimaeus leapt up and came to Jesus. There is the promise of salvation to those who trust in God, to the faithful, as Jesus said to Bartimaeus. And also how God's ransomed or redeemed people. You heard Jesus say in today's reading that he came to give his life as a ransom for many. In this passage, the ransomed or the redeemed people of God follow the holy way the road up to Zion, to Jerusalem, as Jesus walked. So let me just read you these verses from Isaiah 35 for a moment. The desert and the parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom. Like the crocus, it will burst into bloom. It will rejoice greatly and shout for joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it. 
the splendor of Carmel and Sharon. They will see the glory of the Lord, the splendor of our God. It's part of God's vision that the whole world is restored. Even his natural world responds to his salvation. Strengthen the feeble hands. Steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong, do not fear. Your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will save you. And then the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. Then will, then will the lame leap like deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand will become a pool. The thirsty ground bubbling springs in the haunts where jackals once lay. Grass and reeds and papyrus will grow and a highway will be there. It will be called the way of holiness It will be for those who walk on that way. The unclean will not journey on it. Wicked fools will not go about on it. No lion will be there, nor any ravenous beast. Right, be safe through the desert, through the wilderness. They will not be found there, but the redeemed of the Lord will walk there, and those the Lord has rescued will return. They will enter Zion, Jerusalem, with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them, and sorrow and sighing will flee away. That this was the kind of language, these were the kinds of images that Israelites of the first century held in their minds that God is going to heal the world. God is going to change the world and sickness will be banished. Those who are hurting will be healed. The natural world will be transformed. God's people will be restored and kept safe and made holy. Sin will be conquered. And they were looking forward to God doing this very thing. Jesus and many other people knew this passage and were looking forward to God accomplishing this. One of the things that people of Jesus' day really zeroed in on in this passage was this promise that the unclean or the unworthy or the wicked would not walk on the highway to the place of God with the people of God. That those who sought to do them harm wouldn't be there to hurt them anymore. People zeroed in on this and said, what will that be like? And how could we be the people of God helping to make God's will happen? Let me, let me ask you some questions and give you some examples about how this might happen. What's a strategy by which all those who seek to do God's people harm might not be there to do harm? One way would be, should we banish all the bad people? Should we just say, oh, all those wicked evildoers, all the unclean, they're not welcome here. Send them out. Well, in Jesus' day, this was a very viable strategy. Plenty of people thought this was the way to handle it, Right? Uh, a couple generations before Jesus, a few generations before Jesus, were these famous leaders called the Maccabees who rose up with power and with military strength and threw off the foreign oppressors and said, we're going to re-sanctify the land and the temple for God. In Jesus' own day, there was a party of people called the Zealots who were zealous for the holiness of God and for his temple and his land. And they, wanted to, they were revolutionaries who wanted to purify the land of the Roman overlords. Some of them carried daggers under their robes so that when they were in the temple, when the moment came, they could all take their weapons out and stab the bad guys all at the same time, all those Roman soldiers. Banish the bad people. That's one perhaps viable strategy. I see a lot of you sort of shaking your heads when I say that. I, I, I get it. And yet I also... I also get where they're coming from. I also get wanting, I also get being drawn to defense and I get the idea of those people who are right being in charge, right? I mean, it kind of has a certain logic to it. If you were actually the one who was right about everything, wouldn't it be better for all the rest of us that you would be in charge? Wouldn't that be good? Banish all those bad people. I get it. There's another strategy that some people of Jesus' day and also still today are drawn to 
And instead of banishing all the bad people, let's just huddle the holy people all together. Let's just huddle up the holy, right? We'll just leave all those unworthy, unclean, wicked people out there. We're not going to like try to kill them or drive them out. We're just going to let them all, they can have the world to themselves. It's all going to hell anyway. That's one strategy, right? We're going to be over here. And in Jesus' day, there were people who embraced that strategy. Most famously, there was the community of people who gathered in a little monastic setting called Qumran. These people were called Essenes. These are the people who wrote and copied the Dead Sea Scrolls. It was one of the greatest archaeological discoveries of the 20th century. They said, you know what? We we have discovered the way to obey God. We know the right way of holiness. And nobody will believe us, so we're going to come over here by ourselves and do it the right way. And we're just going to be quiet together and do it the right way together until God comes and he takes care of all those other people and saves us. We're going to huddle up the holy. Now, you know, there's there's plenty about this that we recognize right away as problematic, but I do think there's also something about it that also makes sense to us, that we could be a little bit drawn to. Maybe strong fences really do make good neighbors. Maybe we could keep the dangerous things at bay. A lot of us who who are parents recognize this instinct. If we could just keep the bad influences away from our kids, we would be very happy about that. I don't know if I'm the only person in the room, I doubt it, but maybe I am, who has looked at the Amish and gone, these people have it figured out. Like, huh? Now I say that with a cell phone very nearby and my car in the parking lot and all that kind of thing. But like I, I get the instinct, right? And yet as much as I get either of these instincts, yet I have to admit with both conviction and joy that these are not the strategies that Jesus chose to employ. Jesus saw a different way from either of these two things. And I think, I think it, it appears to me in reading the story that Jesus embraced the idea. He agreed with the prophecy in Isaiah. He embraced the idea that all those who walk in the way of God would be God's holy people. That those who seek to do us harm would not be there. That the, that the unworthy would not be there. But for Jesus, I think the reason that there will be no unworthy people along the way is not because they have been disqualified, but because he has made them worthy. <laughs> but because he has saved them. Because he has saved us. You know who is not allowed when they go up the road to Jerusalem to enter into the holy place of God and go before the perfect God? You know who is so imperfect they're not allowed to enter into the presence of the perfect God? Blind people like Bartimaeus, right? And so here Jesus is on his way up to the temple and he encounters Bartimaeus along the way who's not supposed to go with him up there. And so what does he do? Instead of disqualifying him, He qualifies him. (laughs) He saves him. He creates change in his life. He brings his own grace, his own power, and his own compassion to bear in the life of Bartimaeus. Jesus is going up to Jerusalem not just to do a little teaching or a little sightseeing or tourism. He's going up there to die, right? He's going up there to be executed on a Roman cross. It's worth reminding ourselves that a cross was not just a way to die. Rome had many more efficient ways to kill people than crucifixion. They chose the cross not just to kill people, but to crush them, to humiliate them, to shame them, to ruin their reputation so that anybody who followed them and thought like, that's a great guy, I should follow that leader, would literally look up at their leader on a cross and go, oh, never mind, Rome must really be God. That's totally wrong. And to be humiliated along with them. Jesus, who is the son of David, (laughs) who is the king of Israel, who is the rightful king of the whole world, who is the son of God, decides to walk in the way of the cross, to enter into our shame, to enter into our brokenness, 
to enter into the consequences of our sin, to take what seems to be a stain on us, to take the unworthiness that we bear, to take the weakness and the mortality, all that we bear. Jesus goes there to take everything that's ours upon himself and give us what's his. Thank God that Jesus chooses the way of the cross. I mean, I mean, think about it. What if Jesus had chosen the banish the bad strategy, right? What if all the good people got together and took all the power and drove out all the bad people? Let me just ask you to think for a second. How long would that stay good? What do you think? How, how would that work out? In, in world history, how long, how well has that worked out? Usually the end result of that move is genocide, right? What if we chose the, what if Jesus had chosen the huddle up the holy strategy, right? We're going to get all the good people over here and let everybody else go over there. Here's the question I'm just going to ask real simply. How sure are you that you would be in this group and not in that group? Because I, for myself, am not real sure that I would get to be over here. Jesus has chosen instead to, get, to put the holy people on the way of God, not by seeing everyone who's unworthy and saying, you're out, but seeing everyone who's unworthy and saying, come follow me, right? And are offering us his grace and his power. Let me, let me finish by reading you Again, this vision from Isaiah, but I want to read it to you in a different translation this time. This is a little bit more poetic translation. Some of you may have heard of the message translation. I, I don't actually think it's a great translation, usually for close, careful Bible study, but one thing it's really good at is capturing the, the poetry and the imagery of passages like these. So I invite you, as I, as I read this to you, you might want to just, you might want to close your eyes and listen to the, the vision of God's restoration of his whole world his grace and transformation for us, his gathering of his people. Maybe if you close your eyes, you'll fall asleep, so then look at the cross uh, uh, up there instead and give you an image to focus on how Jesus gives his life for ours. Wilderness and desert will sing joyously. The badlands will celebrate and flower. Like the crocus in spring bursting into blossom, a symphony of song and color, mountain glories of Lebanon, a gift. Awesome Carmel, stunning Sharon, gifts. God's resplendent glory fully on display. God awesome, God majestic. Energize the limp hands, strengthen the rubbery knees. Tell fearful souls, courage, take heart. God is here right here, on his way to put things right and redress all wrongs. He's on his way. He'll save you. Blind eyes will be opened, deaf ears unstopped. Lame men and women will leap like deer. The voiceless break into song. Springs of water will burst out in the wilderness. Streams flow in the desert. Hot sands will become a cool oasis. Thirsty ground, a splashing fountain. Even lowly jackals will have water to drink and barren grasslands flourish richly. And there will be a highway called the Holy Road. No one rude or rebellious is permitted on this road. It is for God's people exclusively. Impossible to get lost on this road. Not even fools can get lost on it. No lions on this road. No dangerous wild animals. Nothing and no one dangerous or threatening. Only the redeemed will walk on it. The people God has ransomed will come back on this road. They'll sing as they make their way home to Zion, unfading halos of joy encircling their heads, welcomed home with gifts of joy and gladness as all sorrows and sighs scurry into the night.
streams flowing in this deserted, broken world. A cool, hot sands become a cool oasis for the people of God in the presence of God, in the grace and power and restoration of God for each of us, for our hearts, for our bodies, for our community, and for God's world. Sign me up. <laughs> Sign me up for that. Sign me up for the grace and power of God's work, his grace in my life, for his power transforming my life, for his power transforming our community. And I invite you to, if you, like Bartimaeus, know that you're not worthy, you know how you have disqualified yourself, you feel the stain of what has been done to you, the brokenness and pain simply of this world, I invite you, if you are counting on lesser visions, turning to lesser power, to lesser grace, to place your heart, your life, your trust in the hands of Jesus who fulfills God's promise, who restores God's world, who qualifies even you and me to trust him and to see how God changes the world through death and resurrection, through the death of Jesus, through the power of God's resurrection, and through the power of God's people walking in his way, one act of sacrificial love at a time for one another and for God's world. Let's pray that God's Spirit would do that in us and through us. Lord Jesus, we love you. We thank you. We trust you. We cry out to you. Have mercy on us. Heal us. Restore us, body, mind, and soul. Forgive us. Draw us to yourself. Draw us to your people. Make us yours. We pray that you would do your work in us and that you would do your work through us. We want to follow you, and we pray in your name. Amen.